Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're at the Morton Arboretum in Lyle this week, and it's great to be outside. We are by Meadow Lake, right outside the visitor center at the Morton Arboretum. It's, a, it's the best day of the year, as far as I can tell. And it's great to be out here with the Norway spruces and the chinkapin oak behind me, and there's uh, ducks in the pond, and everything is good. And we're going to talk about one of the things that uh, the Morton Arboretum is most known for. And when I come here on dog walking days with my dog, he's all business and he wants to walk me around the whole place in quick order. But the oak section is a showstopper for me, and I make my dog stop and look at the many varieties of oak trees that are here, which blow my mind because I usually, I'm used to like the four or five oak trees that I think I'm seeing all the time. And here there are about a gajillion oak trees of size and variety. And oaks play an important role in our ecosystem. And the Morton Arboretum has uh, led and taken part in a Oak Conservation Gap Analysis of Native U.S. Oaks that is a really groundbreaking, interesting study, and we're going to talk about oaks now with Dr. Murphy Westwood, Director of the Global Tree Conservation Program at the Morton Arboretum, and she is the lead author on the report. Thank you for joining us, Murphy. Great to see you. Great to see you, too. And Lydia Scott is here, Director of the Chicago Region Trees Initiative and Manager of Community Trees Programs at the Morton Arboretum. Great to see you, Lydia. Thank you. Glad to be here. I wanted to first fix in people's mind the importance of oaks in our ecosystem. Everybody knows that oaks are nice trees and important, but it's unbelievable how important they are in this region's ecosystem. Lydia, do you want to take a crack at that? Oaks are our natural heritage. They're our native heritage in the Chicago region. So pre-settlement, oaks were the dominant tree in our landscape and covered over a million acres of land in the uh, northeast area of Illinois. And so we've lost a lot of those and we want to increase those. But why oaks are important to us is because they are part of our natural heritage and they support many other species and many other different kinds of plants that we rely on in our Chicago region. And when people do surveys of oak trees and how many bugs are on an oak tree, it's way higher than other trees in the region. Like 500 different species. We've got Mm -hmm. a chinkapin oak behind us and there is a gigantic green caterpillar that is within reaching distance. And it's the size of my finger. (laughs) We think it's going to be a moth. But it's that kind of impact on life because then the birds take the little caterpillars and they feed them to their young. And that is how you have a system of life. That's right. And the Chicago region is part of the Mississippi Flyway, where it's a migratory path for birds that migrate across the globe. And so it's really important that we have native species here for them as they're migrating. Murphy, tell us more about the collection here at the Arboretum, because there's not just the five oaks that I think I know here. There are all these other oaks. Yeah, so the oak collection here is actually one of our flagship collections. It's one of our five nationally accredited collections. Um, That's we why have, it's a showstopper. It is, yeah. Stop. We, put a lot of, we put a lot of effort into it. There's good signage. It is. It's very well interpreted. We have over 80 different taxa, different types of oaks here. We specialize in oaks that basically can tolerate our conditions here because we have kind of harsh climate for oaks. Surprisingly, oaks, the real centers of diversity for the whole oak genus are in Mexico and in Southeast Asia. So I think we we really think of oaks as like our tree group here. You know, they're very iconic. In fact, the white oak is the state tree of Illinois. 
but we have just a fraction of the native species that they have in Mexico and Southeast Asia. So oaks are actually more kind of subtropically adapted tree group. So we're kind of the fringe or the edge of their range. And so what we grow here in our oak collection is a wonderful variety of the temperate oaks that you can find here throughout the U.S., but also Europe and Asia. So we have a really interesting collection of oaks from around the world here. So uh, how many oaks are native to the U.S.? We have 91 native oak species in the U.S., and that's out of about 450 species that there are in the whole world of oaks. And you did this study on what is happening with the 91 species of oaks in the United States. And I got to admit that it was surprising and interesting to comb through it. Explain what's going on and why there's a large percentage of oaks that are oaks of concern, as you label them. Tell us what's going on with these. That's right. So we're very interested in oaks here. As as I said, we've got a really iconic collection. As Lydia mentioned, they're incredibly important in our local ecosystem here and our our oak-dominated habitats. And we have uh, several, you know, oak experts on staff. So oaks are very important to us. We wanted to know really what the landscape or sort of the state of the union for our oaks across the whole country, what it looked like. So we conducted this gap analysis. Essentially what we wanted to do was look at where our big conservation needs were and also where our successes have been but really understand, you know, how oaks are doing in the U.S. And what we found was pretty concerning. We basically identified 28 of those 91 species as species of conservation concern. The main reason that we could identify based on extensive discussions with experts from around the country and a a long literature review is that climate change is going to be one of the biggest issues facing these oaks For actually all 28 of those species of concern, climate change was a big concern. Other factors were human modification of the land, so things like residential and urban development and roads, and then modifications of natural systems like fire and fire suppression. So the conservation efforts for these oaks of concern, you wanted to narrow things down and and make people recognize which one of these trees were of concern, both in the wild and in situations like arboretums. You did amazing surveys of the various arboretums, and I was really surprised to see that five of the oaks are only in European arboretums. I was like, shouldn't they be growing here? Shouldn't we be trying to grow them near where they actually grow? Exactly. One of our biggest concerns for oaks is that they can't be seed banked. So a seed bank is a really powerful conservation tool for threatened plant species. You basically collect the seeds, you put them in a little envelope, you dry them down, and you store them in a fridge or a freezer. It's a very effective and efficient way to preserve seeds, essentially the genetic diversity of a species, as an insurance policy against extinction. Oaks don't survive in those conditions. The acorns aren't viable after you pull them out of the fridge or the freezer. So we basically need to use botanic gardens as living seed banks. So we grow the trees in our living collections as this insurance policy against extinction. And the concerning thing about this survey that we did was, as you said, there are several species that are only in European gardens. There was one native species that's in no collection anywhere. There are about nine species that are represented by fewer than 15 plants in any 
garden collection. So these are these gaps, these conservation gaps that we wanted to identify. So the report basically provides a roadmap and these clear recommendations and guidelines for where conservationists and, you know, from a variety of sectors, whether that's botanic gardens or conservation NGOs or the Forest Service or state conservation agencies, where we can be putting our effort to have the most impact. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and we're talking about the oak conservation gap analysis that was led by the Morton Arboretum. Dr. Murphy Westwood is director of the Global Tree Conservation here and was one of the lead authors in the report. And Lydia Scott is director of the Chicago Region Trees Initiative. And Lydia, when you hear that, what, what does that mean for different regional initiatives? Because it sounds like the regions should be doing the conservation thing for the oak of their region. Well, that's that's absolutely right. Everyone can play a role in helping to conserve oak ecosystems, especially here in the Chicago region. So when we look at our oak ecosystems, we only have 17% remaining of what we had pre-settlement times. So uh, what we've gotten to now are just fragmented landscapes across our region that support oak groves that were here pre-settlement. And we need to be thinking about our backyards and our parkways and our roadways as opportunities to connect these fragmented landscapes. When you look at the maps, there's and there's the pre-settlement maps where there's big green blotches of oaks, and then the, the oak blotches get really teeny, and you know they spread lots of teeny things. Is that true with the other oak species when you're watching them become less prevalent, it sounds like their areas shrink up. I, I know that there was a little box in your report about the uh, Hinkleyi, and it was shrinking up, and you were doing genetic al- analysis of what happens when these little puddles of oaks start getting like little puddles. They, they, they have problems. It's true. With these populations, when they get very fragmented like that, there are big issues with gene flow, and that has a lot to do with the ability of a species to kind of keep reproducing and maintain these levels of genetic diversity. And the genetic diversity that you have in a species is basically the toolkit that that species has to deal with future issues like climate change or new pests and diseases. So when we have these fragmented populations, it basically eliminates the ability for the species to maintain these higher levels of genetic diversity. And that's one of the big concerns that we highlighted in our report and an area of research that we think is really important. So we're doing that research here at the Morton Arboretum, the population genetics research to understand which of these little fragments, these puddles, as you said, of remaining habitat and of these remaining populations harbors the highest levels of genetic diversity so that we can really prioritize those both for protection in the wild and to collect the acorns and distribute them as these in these living gene banks in collections, the, this insurance policy against extinction. So the kind of things that you're doing here at the Arboretum is to try to create a big enough gene pool within your own collection even to keep a, a strong oak species. That's right. We are very fortunate at the Arboretum to have over 1,700 acres of property here. Half of it is in restored natural areas like woods and wetlands in our prairie, and the other half of it is in these managed collections where you saw the oaks. What we are now moving towards is a much stronger focus on 
conservation collections. So we are developing conservation groves of tens to hundreds of individuals of one species that were collected in the wild from across the range, really well-documented provenance of where these plants came from so that we can manage these populations here, do controlled breeding with them, and, and generate more acorns to share with other gardens and eventually to restore into the wild. Well, that sounds like a great thing to do. Are, are there other organizations out there who are doing similar things? Because when I looked at the report and saw that there are places that are not, they don't seem to be doing the, the oaks that they're regionally should be doing. It's tricky. Conservation, you know, especially for trees. I mean, look at these things, right? They're huge, big, unwieldy, long-lived trees. It's not like you're trying to protect a little, you know, a little grass or a mouse. You know, you can't really manage these things very easily. You need a lot of space and a lot of expertise. Trees are kind of hard to grow. So really, it's, it's a lot of different disciplines and sectors that need to be involved in conservation and that are involved in conservation. That was actually one of the challenges of the report was, was trying to reach out to these experts from so many different sectors. So other botanical gardens in Arboreta, uh, federal agencies like Forest Service staff, state agencies, conservation NGOs, and they all have their own unique expertise and roles to play in conservation. And a lot of them are, but these living collections really is the wheelhouse of the botanical garden and arboretum community. Was there any good news in the report? Because a lot of it seemed to be tough news. Yeah. Um, is there, are there success stories that you think people should know about? Yeah, there are. I mean, also just one of the successes I thought was that there are hundreds and hundreds of organizations that are doing oak conservation. And that actually was a surprise to me. People and organizations I'd never heard of responded to our survey. And, you know, we were connected through, you know, email forwards and, oh, you should call my friend so-and-so. And and developing that network was incredibly valuable and reassuring. So there is action happening out there. In terms of success stories, I thought a really interesting one was the Channel Islands off of the southern coast of California, which have a few native species of oak, that some of which occur there and nowhere else in the world. And the Channel Islands have really been plagued by these introduced pigs and sheep from sort of early... Uh, pre, you know, settlement times in the sort of 1800s. They wreck havoc on a landscape. Oh, absolutely, especially on islands. And so they had been decimating basically all of the plant population on these islands for decades. And through really concerted management efforts, the Nature Conservancy and the National Park System and some of the other landowners that manage the Channel Islands have eradicated these just in the last 10 or 20 years on a few of the islands. And the rebound of the populations there is really remarkable. Do you have a happy oak story in this area, Lydia? Is there a success story? Well, we have a, an effort underway with the Oak Ecosystem Recovery Plan uh, implementation that is a success story. And it's occurring in seven of the local counties here where we're working with the forest preserve districts and private landowners to increase biodiversity of these oak ecosystems and continue to protect and preserve them for the future here. 
You know, I did. Th- I was optimistic when, right on my own street, a bunch of the ash trees went down, and I got a chinkapin oak uh, two houses away from me. That's and great. That, that was. Uh, I thought that was a good move. Good sign. People are showing some variety and, and some wisdom in their planting these days. Yes, we're seeing much much more diversity, and and oaks and native trees are being more commonly planted. Well, come on out to Morton Arboretum and see their show-stopping oak exhibit, and uh, you can check out their oak conservation gap analysis online. And it's been great talking oaks with Lydia Scott, director of the Chicago Region Trees Initiative and manager of the Community Trees Program at the Morton Arboretum, and Dr. Murphy Westwood. She's director of the Global Tree Conservation Program at the Morton Arboretum and was one of the leaders on the oak conservation gap analysis of native U.S. oaks. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We've talked a lot about the science of trees. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the spirituality of trees. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're at the Morton Arboretum this week for Worldview. And one of the topics we wanted to discuss was the spirituality of trees. Everyone knows that trees are communicating with each other now and they have a life force. And there are cultures that have recognized this for ages and ages. And I do know somebody who had recently a ceremony for a tree Writer Wen Huang, who joins us frequently to talk about China, is here, and he had to cut down a tree and did a, a ceremony that recognized its spirituality. Wen, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jerome. Tell us about your tree and how you decided to recognize its spirituality here. So I had a tree in my backyard had for 20 years. It's growing so fast. And then, but it started to cause nuisance because uh, the leaves causing problems with my roof and blocking the light. So I decided to cut down the tree. But it's, I've been with it for 20 years. It's kind of a sad part of the tree. And also, you know that in Chinese culture and the trees play such an important role in feng shui. And also, many Chinese people, when I told them about cutting the tree, they said the trees are spiritual and you have to be very careful because it could impact your career and your family life if you are not careful if you cut the tree too abruptly. So I contact my sister in China. And she told me the same thing, but she was not an expert. She consulted with a feng shui expert. So after a couple of days, my sister sent me uh, a text message with detailed instructions from the feng shui master. So the feng shui master have to know how far the trees from my house, what the tree was like, got all the details. And then 
the feng shui master gave gave me three dates for the 8th no. of, the, of May or uh, the 7th of May. These are the auspicious dates that I could cut my tree. And also specific time, for example, 9 to 11 o'clock in the morning or 1 to 3 in the afternoon to cut the trees. And also before cutting the trees, I had to buy some red silk or red paper if you can't get the silk. Like the specific measures of how big the paper would be, I have to wrap around the tree. And then I have to light some incense and then around the tree, and then they give me the specific words to chant. For example, the spirit of the tree is leaving, hope uh, my life and yours will be auspicious, something like that. So she sent me this whole detailed instruction. So I just realized that uh, you have to do it like three days before the, the cut. So I called Monica. You know how Monica, each time she hears something, she ha- it has to be a story. So <laughs> Monica came to help me. But Monica, do you remember that? I sure do. And this is Monica Eng, also a frequent worldview contributor. And so I came over and I wanted to understand my Chinese culture better. And I wanted to understand why you were cutting down a 20-year-old tree. And I realized, yeah, you said that you have to warn the tree and tell it three days in advance what's going to happen so it's not a shock. And so my mother and I, we lit incense and talked to the tree and marched around it and uh, helped you send it into its next life. Yeah, and then Monica, when she first showed up, she was a little bit skeptical. So I showed her a video on YouTube. These Chinese monks, they specifically talk about when you cut a tree, what kind of ceremonies you should follow. So there's this one monk, it's very clear, short video in Chinese. He lives in Australia, somewhere outside Sydney or something. He talked about his experience saying that the the monastery there, and then they had to cut down the tree near the entrance. So they prayed and then followed the the ceremony that my sister uh, said, similar ceremony. And then they had the ceremony three days before the tree cut. And then after they cut the tree, the abbot said that he had a dream. The spirit of the tree came to his dream and uh, was complaining. He said very loudly, that uh, the abbot did not give the tree spirit enough time to move. Because in China, it could be three days. But in Australia, everything's moved so slowly. The tree spirit needed a week. Ah. So the the (laughs) abbot on the video, I showed Monica the video, and the abbot on the video said, you have to give enough time. Like if you're in Australia a week, maybe in America, things move slightly faster. So we decided to do like four days before the tree cut. So Monica, your mother happened to be there too. And I did a small ceremony, but... uh, Monica's mother was more authentic. I saw the video of your mother there, Monica. I think she really bought into this. She did. You know, she um, actually took the Tree Keepers course in Chicago. She was one of the earliest people uh, who took that Open Lands course, and she takes it very seriously. And when you sent that video off to a lot of your friends in China, right? I sent the video because she was so serious. We, I wrapped the tree, so I went to Walgreens and bought some of the red uh, silky, the paper, wrapping paper, because I couldn't buy red silk. It was too expensive to 
wrap it around the silk. So I wrapped it around. I didn't have scotch tape. I had some of the United Airlines, the blue <laughs> tape of the United Airlines on it, and wrap it together. Well, the and tree's I, going on a journey, kind of like. Right. Like and then I had the incense from Chinatown. So I lit it up. She, I gave her the incense. She walked around the tree and then chanted. So I taped the whole thing and gave her instructions. So when I showed it to my friends in China, they thought I had hired an English-speaking monk in the United States. Somebody asked me, how much did you pay for her? They thought she was so authentic. And then actually, after the tree ceremony, I kind of felt pretty good, feeling like at least I did something rather than just abruptly cut the tree. Maybe I still have that tree stump there, but it makes me feel better. I guess that's the, the whole purpose of this ceremony. And what about you and your mom, Monica? Did you guys feel better after the tree ceremony? We did. We felt like we helped our friend uh, give a real proper Chinese send-off to the tree and, and that he wasn't taking it lightly. I think my tree spirit must must be pretty happy because I did a ceremony, I lit some incense, and you went there and then walked around the tree and chanted, right? And then your mother right. came, did a thorough one. So we had three rituals, three ceremonies for the spirit to move away. All right. So I guess we could recommend this to other people, tree ceremonies. It's a good productive thing to do. I think so. I think maybe we can write up something to post on the Worldview site to let people know at least how a couple of Chinese Americans sent their tree into its next uh, existence. But I think it makes me feel better. It's almost like the, the living for the funeral when people go have this lavish funeral. It's not really for the tree, but for the living next time when we try to cut a tree, we, I guess, will take it more seriously. We won't cut that many trees. The other thing is I felt like it blessed the whole process because when the tree cutter came, it was very hard because the tree was in my backyard, and they cut it so smoothly, and uh, I thought it was going to damage my neighbor's roof, but it didn't. I thought maybe the ceremony had something to do with it and to ensure the smooth cutting of the tree because the spirit moved away, didn't uh, boycott the, the cut. And, you know, Jerome, um, I've done stories about how the city's been cutting trees for water work, and they've finally started looking into other methods. And I think if the city of Chicago employed such a careful and conscientious method before cutting each tree, I think we'd all be thinking about it a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, we got to get the uh, Department of Forestry on that. Who does the cutting, actually? Actually, it's the Department of Water Management that tells the Bureau of Forestry to cut them down. And the folks at the Bureau of Forestry have actually not wanted to do this, so they're glad that there's going to be a more considered process coming. I think they should hire your mother to do the chanting because uh, once not only the uh, Agreed. prosperity for the city, it also could reduce uh, work accidents because the smooth cutting of the tree and also makes the love the tree some more. Writer Wen Huang, uh, thanks for joining us and sharing your story of spirituality and, and trees. And Monica Eng, I think we found a new line of work for your mom. Indeed. <laughs> thanks a lot, Monica. Thanks, guys. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about nature and our state symbols, and we'll consider whether we should rename the state bird and the state flower. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview. 
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're out at the Morton Arboretum this week, enjoying ourselves on some of the finest days of the year. We thought we'd talk for a few minutes about some of our state symbols. One of our friends has been petitioning for a change of some of our state symbols surrounding nature because they seem kind of lame. Rob Telfer is here, and he is a bard, a poet, a nature lover, a naturalist educator, and he's been making some pretty strong petitions to change the state flower and the state bird. Good to see you, Rob. It's good to see you as well, Jerome. Uh, Leighton, you started out with the state flower, which currently is the violet. Can you explain a little what, what you've got against the violet, what you think would be more appropriate? Well, the violet is a bully, first of all. It is the state flower of four states, um, including Wisconsin, which is embarrassing. And uh, there are lots of really nice violets. There is the bird's foot violet and the downy yellow violet. And there's a lot of different violets, but ours is just violet. And there are many of them. And it was voted on to be our state flower in 1907 by school children. They voted for it over the goldenrod and I believe the rose, (laughs) and that's the one they picked. And here we are, 2019. We still have lots of violets, but maybe there is a flower that better represents Illinois than a flower that is uh, ubiquitous and everywhere and not just in Illinois. And I think you make a good argument that there should be something symbolic and educational and something we feel a particular tie to because this is a it's a state symbol it's a it's a symbol of something and if the violet is a symbol of almost nothing it's not even a specific kind of violet uh what do we got nothing uh we got basically nothing that makes us illinois-y enough and so that's something about uh nature that i love is that anywhere i go whenever i go outside of Chicago, I look at my Google map and I look for the big green square on the map uh, nearest to wherever I'm going, you know, whatever conference I have to go to or whatever awesome family member I'm visiting. And I just go there. I go to that green square, that green rectangle, and I walk around and I see what that place is. And, you know, when you're in driving through Michigan, uh, you feel like you are in Michigan. When you're driving around upstate New York, you feel like you're in upstate New York, driving around the desert. It, they, the places you drive or walk feel like the place that you are. In Illinois, our darling prairie state, uh, the prairie was intentionally removed uh, to make way for farmland. And so when you're driving around Illinois, uh, it does not look like Illinois. It looks like you're in a farm. And... That's fine, but there are things, there are flowers from here, there are plants, animals, things that live here, and some that only live here that are special and not only worth celebrating, but using that celebration as a way to protect them and make sure that they live as freely and joyfully as our darling Violet. So your nominee for potential state flower is what? Uh, Iliamna remota, the Kankakee mallow. It is a darling flower. I love it so. It is a, it's like a hollyhock. Um, it's in the sort of mallow family and it uh, has little pink petals and it grows to be about five feet tall. 
and it's uh it's a it's a stunner it's a looker and the reason that i love it so much is that uh it's only known home habitat has been on the island of langham island in the kankakee river and that's it so that is as Illinois as I think something can get. I think there are good arguments for other flowers that are more Illinois than the violet, but I love that one because in 2014, some plant nerds went to go visit this like delicious little jewel of Illinois. They were like, we're gonna go to the island, we're gonna see the Kankakee Mallow and its home habitat. And they went there and it was completely gone. It was overrun with invasive species. The island was covered in Amur honeysuckle. And the plant nerds were like, oh no, what have we done? And so they immediately organized this habitat restoration effort where they cut out all of the honeysuckle that they could. They looked at maps of where on the island, it's only a 20 acre island, but like where the mallow was last seen. Um, And they removed all the invasive species there. And mallow seeds are really interesting because they require hot fire in order to germinate not just prairie fire, but like hotter than that fire. And so um, some folks like Stephen Packard and Trevor Edmondson, who lead the effort on Langham Island, they rolled the logs of the invasive plants that they had just cut down that were on fire uh, over these patches where the mallow had last been seen. And so they were rolling this hot fire (laughs) over the, the ground in the winter. And then the next summer, 2015, we went out there and we looked where they had rolled the logs and it was a perfect carpet of baby mallows that had germinated there um, because of that work. And now there are, I'm going back there this Saturday with, with a program I'm running and they're caged off, they're protected and they are uh, flourishing. And I love that, not just because this is a flower that's just from Illinois, but it's also a flower that was saved by humans paying attention to how other humans ruined it not on purpose. I don't think people would, I don't don't know a lot of people who would intentionally destroy a species, but as we see with extinctions around the world, people's priorities are killing species. And so by telling that story, by having that be the symbol of our state flower, it, I think, would encourage people to look around them anywhere and say, what do I have that's here that's special? What can I do to protect it and celebrate it and, and feel a sense of connection to it that is different from Wisconsin? I'm talking with Rob Telfer at the Morton Arboretum, and this is Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald, and we're talking about state symbols and why we should change uh, the state flower from violet to Kankakee Mallow. And th- that's a pretty good argument. It's a, it's a restoration argument. It's an educational argument. Um, an aesthetic argument. It is much prettier than the violet. Mallows are gorgeous objects. Are there other flowers out there that people have nominated that you think are worthy? So the state actually had, I believe, a state wildflower named, uh, which was the milkweed. And there's a bunch of milkweeds, too. Uh, Some are more rare than others. Some are not weeds at all, but they're federally endangered. Uh, And they're gorgeous. I love milkweeds. And I think naming a milkweed, um, I'm particular to uh, tall green milkweed, Asclepius hertella. Um, It is very gorgeous, uh, and it's not common at all. Um, that would be a really good one that we have here. Uh, and the milkweed, I think, is a good argument because it, of its attachment to our state insect, the monarch butterfly, which I think has been getting a lot of amazing press about its plight and its uh, save, saving 
by people recognizing what a milkweed is, the host plant of the monarch butterfly, and why, if we want to have this beautiful state insect, uh, Danos plexippus, then we need to have this beautiful flower. Um, it's teaching us all the connection between host plant and insect and, and the, the glorious uh, path that nature takes. Yeah, it's a, it's a as a symbol and, and as a story, I think it's a really good ambassador for teaching people about ecosystems, that these things don't exist in a vacuum. I've heard a good argument for the plant Prairie Dock. I love it. There's some right here by Meadow Lake yeah. with their great, they have great big leaves that look like some kind of prehistoric thing. And then they put up their 12 foot shoots. Yeah. And on a windy day, if one of those giant shoots hits you in the face, you could get a mark. They'll hurt you. The prairie will punch you in the face. Um, and so from what I've heard about Prairie Dock, uh, its range does extend outside of Illinois, but its range is very much uh, all of Illinois. And so if you are in an Illinois native habitat, you're going to see prairie dock. And I think that's a really great symbol. It's very, like like you said, it looks prehistoric. The, the leaves feel like lizard skin and the roots go like 20 feet down. And so it pulls up this cold groundwater. So even on the hottest day on the prairie, if you touch the leaf, it's cold. Uh, and that's a great symbol because if you're learning what a plant feels like, uh, that means that you are developing a relationship with it. I can't tell you what a violet feels like, even though I've touched them. You know, <laughs> like, like there's less to say. There's less of an experience. And Prairie Dock is great all year long in the middle of winter when it's still got the little sticks up and the great big leaves have shriveled. It's it's gorgeous all the time. Yeah, Prairie Dock is uh, what they call in the, the horticultural business year-round interest, uh, which means that winter sucks here, and so we need something to look at, and Prairie Dock delivers. And one thing I will say, too, that I learned recently is um, to talk about birds a little bit. We might hear some red-winged uh, blackbirds calling at us right now. They may attack us, and uh, people complain about that, that the red-winged blackbirds are always dive-bombing them. And if you take a Prairie Dock stem and stick it in the back of your shirt, the red-winged blackbird will attack that because it's going for the highest, the tallest part of you. And so Prairie Dock could then also help protect us from our lovely, beautiful, uh, very defensive red-winged blackbirds. Wow, pretty good case for Prairie Dock. I'm talking with Rob Telfer about some of our state symbols, our nature-based state symbols, and I want to move more directly over to the state bird, which uh, I think this is one that most people recognize as the cardinal. And you recently had an event where you kind of re-debated whether the cardinal is a worthy state symbol. Uh, what are the parameters of, of that conversation? So similarly, like the, the violet, the cardinal is the state bird of seven states. Um, I will not deny that it is beautiful. Uh, and it is also very ubiquitous. Um, it's also like very common everywhere. There's nothing particularly Illinois about that either. Um, once again, just like the violet, it was voted on by school children in 1929. So all of these school children are not children anymore. So their, their innocence doesn't need to be sort of uh, heralded. They're all old people if they're still around. And so what uh, do you think it's fair that school children get to make all the decisions on this? And, and they, they made the call on state popcorn. Popcorn is a state snack and the state amphibian and the reptile. And I, I, kids name their schools really strange things. They name it the porpoises and things like that. I, I, don't, I don't know if they should be in charge. Yeah, I think kids have had too much power for too long, and it's time we take it back from them. It's time we have, have a popular revolution against children and their, their thoughts. No, I think that like the whole point of education is we lead 
young people to make their own discoveries. And, and the, the only good argument that I hear for the violet and the cardinal as the state symbols for our flower and bird are that they are things that young kids can recognize and see. They'll, they, like, no matter where you are, you will probably see one of those things. So I, I am down with that, but I don't think that goes far enough. And we see throughout the country examples of state symbols that are just in those places. And those state symbols are, uh, they, they carry more of a load than just this is a thing that you can see. And so, yeah, the cardinal is the state uh, bird of seven states. Um, and there are birds who live here who, like the mallow, require very specific conditions in order to flourish and so there there are some good arguments on the bird and i'm not settled like i i could be convinced of several different species of birds i don't have as strong opinions as i do about the mallow but you recently had an event where um i know stephanie belke from audubon uh made a good case for the bobolink which is a, a grassland bird and it kind of has a similar prairie education aspect to it and she made some Great arguments that it's a symbol of freedom, resiliency of our native prairies that once dominated Illinois. The bird reminds us to protect and restore our state prairies and grasslands. That's a pretty good message. I agree. And, um, yeah, it's once again calling attention to the fact that if you like a bobolink, you need to have these prairies. And if you don't have prairies, you won't see them. I have not seen a bobolink in nature, and I'm going to prairies all the time, and I'm looking for them. They're an amazing bird that migrate from Argentina to Illinois, and they have a beautiful call. Um, they nest here, and that, that if we made something like that the state symbol, it would be almost to say, like, hey, we need to invite more of these back, and the way we invite them back is making sure they have comfortable habitat. Uh, there was also a very good case made uh, recently uh, by Doug Stotts, orthonologist, uh, about um, the red-headed woodpecker. And this is something people do see. It's a threatened bird, but it is uh, you can see it out there. Yeah, it's in every county in Illinois. It is very beautiful, too. In the event, um, so Doug is from the Field Museum, and he was able to bring specimens so we could see all the different birds, the dead birds next to each other um, aesthetically. And it's uh, it's very stunning. And, and when it's flying, it looks very uh, cool, the way the patterns of its wings uh, fan out. And we were able to play the bird calls of the bobolink next to the, the red-headed woodpecker. And so the bobolink has a very beautiful call. <laughs> the red-headed woodpecker sounds like someone being murdered <laughs> it sounds it sounds like someone being attacked and so doug's like i can see that point that it's like ah, ah, ah. but otherwise uh you know it requires this sort of open woodland habitat that is also very threatened in illinois we are known as the prairie state but we are also um largely this woodland oak savanna ecosystem and those have been completely overrun with things like common buckthorn and uh privet and mulberries and and so these open woodlands are necessary for a red-headed woodpecker to exist and they will treat things like um power lines with what's that stuff they put on the outside of it like the that shellac or whatever like that's to keep red-headed woodpeckers from like making homes inside of these pseudo trees um i think it'd be amazing if we could just make those 
so that they could live in there without uh, ruining our electricity somehow. Um, that could be a really great statewide program to encourage this really awesome and important bird to come back. Now, you, you made an argument about the cardinal as just being kind of, you know, past its prime as a state bird. Yeah, so it's, I, I, I sort of likened it to an incumbent, uh, maybe one of these aldermen who have been uh, in place for a little bit too long in Chicago, who just sort of gets things done the way that it needs to. And, and uh, during the debate, one of the questions was like, what does your candidate feel about habitat restoration? And of course, the bobolink needs these prairies and the uh, red-headed woodpecker needs these open woodlands. And uh, the cardinal is like, I don't care. You know, like I, I like your backyard. Yeah, I'll live. I'll live. In, give me any old bush, um, and I'll be all right. And so, uh, that's the thing. It's like you know, it's it's gonna be okay. And I think in general, we are waking up to the fact that uh, the Earth isn't limitless. Nature isn't limitless. It is finite, and that you can right now do a thing that keeps a species from going extinct. You right now can make it so that it lives in perpetuity and violets and cardinals are going to be okay. And if we can find people outside of these sort of nature nerd choirs to sing to, this is a good door to open those conversations. So uh, what should we just take it to the school children and make the argument so that they so that they can wrest uh, some of the control back from the school children of 1907 and create new symbols that are more appropriate to our time? So as I understand it, what we would need is the Illinois State Assembly to vote on it. Then the legislators would either say, all right, we are going to open it up to the kids again, or like they have done with sort of these recent state symbols, just unilaterally um, changed it. Uh, and so when when I first launched this campaign, we had a bill uh, from the state house that was change the flower to the, the Kankakee Mallow um, from the then rep in Kankakee, Kate Clunan. She had submitted it. Uh, she lost her reelection bid. And so that bill sort of got shelved. Um, if there are state legislators listening, they can bring it to their constituents and see like, well, I, I could write this bill or co-sponsor a bill that someone else introduces and uh, get some energy behind it. And uh, that's, I think that's the main way of something like this, uh, the quickest way it could change, circumventing the need for children to, to, to decide these very important things. And I, I feel like the things children can decide about this are like, how to do their uh, native garden planting that encourages the, the, these things to come to them, how to uh, design a birdhouse or a uh, we had recently this really amazing story of the youth at water school in Chicago preventing the destruction of their native plant garden and the old trees they have there that is the these young children who protested that they, they like shut it down they changed this plan that adults had with their power that's where I would love to direct it is like there's a talk right now of the mining operation going into uh, Romeoville that would take out six acres of remnant Messick wetlands. And that I would love to put some kids in there and being like, you can't take this when you take out a remnant. The remnant is the thing that hasn't been disturbed. When you remove that, it is never replaceable. It is gone forever. And Illinois has been really good about removing things that are now gone forever. Uh, we have less than 0.01% of the prairie left. And so 
we can do habitat restoration and we can replicate what 10,000 years of uh, natural ecosystem health looks like, but it's never going to be the same. Rob Telford, thank you for starting this discussion on our state symbols and where we're going with our land usage in this state. And hopefully we'll see some better things happen in the future. I agree. Thank you for letting me talk about uh, nerdy stuff. Rob Telfer is a bard, he is a poet, he is a writer, he is a naturalist, he is an educator, and he is concerned about uh, restoration and the things that we're doing here in Illinois to make our land and animals' habitats better. So let's get out there and think, think through these state symbols. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. I want to give a big thank you to everyone at the Morton Arboretum for making us so comfortable and making this so fun this week. Thanks to Nicole Cavender, Bridget Bittman, and Maggie Carides, just a portion of the people who are making us comfortable and happy this week at the Morton Arboretum. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida, Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland, our production assistants on the show. We'll be back at the Morton Arboretum for more again tomorrow when we'll be talking about trees and the UN sustainability goals. Hope you can join us. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.